0: I'll be honest with you, I had uh, one of these moments uh, a few minutes ago. There, there's, there's just a sweetness and there's a, a tenderness of the Lord that's here in this room and, and he's with us. Um, and uh one of those moments where I don't even know, I know I'm supposed to preach, but I'm like, I don't know that I want to get up and preach. I just want to keep going. And uh, But uh, as we worship, we worship not just in music, but we worship as we listen to the word, and as we submit to it. And so one of, our, one of our aims is that we continue that worship here in this moment. Um, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Colossians. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, before I jump in and, and get there, uh, let me just say this. Today is uh, officially Sanctity of Life Sunday. Uh, churches all across our country are celebrating and acknowledging today. And so let me say a couple things about today in particular. Um, one, our church, uh, we believe in the sanctity of life. Uh, we have three directors of three separate crisis pregnancy centers that in Fort Worth and in Arlington that are members of Travis. We care about sanctity of life. And we we put our money where our mouth is, we we give, we donate, we serve, uh, we help those organizations at the same time that we ought to be helpful to those that are in a crisis type scenario. Sanctity of life is not just about babies, it's about all ages and all generations from the cradle all the way to the grave. And so our posture as a people of God is that we want to honor life at conception and we want to honor life throughout life in the the teenage years and the 30s and the 50s and, and all the way up until God calls us home to treat everyone with dignity, with respect because they are made in the image of God. And so when we talk about sanctity of life, we're talking about all the generations that exists, and we celebrate and we support those things. Today, uh, we're starting a, uh, just a four-week series and walking through what, what I believe and what many scholars would contend are the four major, what, what scholars would call just Christological passages in the New Testament. What that means is it's just simply a study of Christ and a theology of Christ. Now, the reason why we're doing that is, is really simple. Several weeks ago, I just sort of in my own spirit was just wrestling with uh, culture, was wrestling with what I was watching on TV, uh, wrestling with what I was seeing Christians talk about on social media platforms and, and all over the place. And I sort of got this uh, sort of holy just discontent in, in my heart to where I got to the point where I just kind of came to this place where it's like, man, we are so focused and passionate on, on well-meaning and good things, that we should be passionate for and we should think about those things. But the reminder is this, and this is sort of where the series comes in, is that we need to get our eyes off of culture and political warfare and we need to look and we need to gaze deeply and lovingly and intently at our Savior. Like the focus and the heart and the attention and where I think the church is often missing it in these moments right here is because our posture while we advocate for those things is to keep our eyes on the only other person in the world that can fix it and that can solve it. And I think too often we begin to worry about tertiary things too often and too quickly because we are not enamored And our gaze, we don't don't lovingly and longly gaze at our Savior because sometimes we just don't understand exactly who He is or we've heard that story over and over and over again and somewhere in our thinking we've decided that I'm mature enough, I'm just going to get past it. And so what we're going to do the next four weeks is we're going to study, there's four of them in the New Testament, John 1, Philippians 2, Hebrews 1, and... Colossians 1. And we're going to start with Colossians 1 today. And I want to invite you to look with me as we begin to read. And the text just simply says this, beginning in verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus He is the image of the God that we can't see, that if we want to see God, we look to Jesus. He's our savior. He's our redeemer. He's our hope. He's the one that's reconciled us. Not political parties, not Democrats, not Republicans, not libertarians, not whoever the next candidates will be. Uh, They're already starting to campaign for 2022 and 2024. Make me want to throw up. Can we have a pause here? We've already begun and we've got a whole world that's looking, but I think, to the the wrong place because friends, our issue is not a political issue, it's a sin issue. And legislation, though we advocate for for things that match up with the Bible, it is not the thing that is going to fix the hearts of people who are estranged and, and who are aliens from God, hostile, alienated from him. Several weeks ago, I came across an article in the Wall Street Journal, and it just simply asked a very simple question and then sort of answered it. Um, and the question was this, it's the question that everybody's asking, when are we going to get back to normal? You've asked that before? You said that to yourself as you're driving, as you're counseling yourself, like, when are things going to get back to normal? And then you start talking loud to yourself in the car, am I the only one that does that, that counsels myself out loud in the car? Okay, shame on y'all, okay? So listen, we all ask that question, right? When is it going to get back to normal? What if the answer to that question was this? It's never going to get back to normal. What if that's the answer to the question? Then what's the posture of the church? If things are never going to get back to normal, and I don't know if they, if they will or they will not, but, but I do believe this. I'm not a prophet, but I, but I do believe this. And if you don't believe this, I, I would say you, you might be a little naive. Things have changed, have they not? It's different Culture's changing, businesses are changing, commerce is changing, politics are changing, the church is changing. But I'm not here today to advocate that the church change away from the principles and the truth that God gives us in his word. In fact, I'm here today to reiterate some things that we have believed for 2,000 years and to say emphatically that we're not gonna let go of these things that our doctrine's gonna stay the same as we wrestle through some of these harder issues, but, but also we're faced with the reality that the methods in which we deploy our, our resources and, and the methods in, in which we go about reaching people that are far from God, those absolutely, mark my words, 100% will change here. In fact, they already have, and, and some of us don't know it yet. But Paul, as he writes from a jail cell, he's addressing a church in Colossae that had two major issues. One, they were asking this question, Paul, if you're such a good guy, why do you keep getting arrested? Why do you keep finding yourself in, in jail? And so they were wrestling with that as a church. Should we follow Paul? He, he seems to find himself in prison all the time. And, and the only reason he found himself in prison was because he was faithfully preaching the gospel. And so he would get arrested and be put in jail cell. So here he was writing this letter to this church in jail. And they're asking this question, but then Paul also, even though he didn't start the church, but he was aware of the church's needs, began to understand that the church in Colossae at this moment in time, listen to this, was being more infiltrated and impacted by the culture in their city And they were being changed by the culture in their city that they were beginning to forsake some basic doctrines about Jesus and beginning to walk away from some timeless truths. And so Paul's like, listen, I'm going to address you because you seem to capitulate to wherever the culture goes, and we shouldn't do that as a church. And so, the way I'm going to argue against doing that is I'm going to sort of lay out this case that you need to understand Jesus rightly for who he is, and that you need to be enamored by his work, you need to be infatuated with what he's done and what he is doing and what he's going to do. And so we picked up in verse 15 where he says, he's the image of the invisible God. That word image in the Greek is the word icon. Phonetically, it spells out E-I-K-O-N, but we get the word icon from, from this phrase here in the New Testament. And it has this idea of this uh, imprintation or this representation, like you would grab a quarter or or a nickel or, or a penny and you would see this representation of a face on that coin. Jesus is the icon. He's the representation. He, he is the one that displays who God is, this imprint that exists. But, but listen to me, it doesn't just mean that he imprints what God would, would look like and what we see, but I think even more importantly, it's this representation of the character of God that we see displayed in Jesus. Meaning the goodness and, and the kindness that we see in Jesus is a reflection of God the compassion and and the mercy that he shows. Jesus is a representation of the character of God and all of his attributes intertwined there. Jesus is the perfect manifestation of those things, the exact representation. All that God is, Jesus is. And we are made in the image of God and Jesus is God. And so what that shows us is that God is changing us. If we're submitting to his spirit, guess what? He is changing us to look like Jesus. Oftentimes I used to get this question when I was a student minister and they would, it was a common question. You see it within college students and young adults. What is God's will for my life? And I learned this from Johnny Derwin sitting in a student ministry class in seminary when I was probably 21, 22 years old and he was wrestling with this question and I've repeated it over and over and over again. It's really easy. I know God's will for your life. I'm not a prophet. Um, I'm not collecting money. You're not, you're not paying me as a, uh, as a tarot card reader or a psychic but I can tell you that I know what God's will is for your life. You know what that will is? It is to be like Jesus. To be conformed, to, to look like him and to talk and to think like him, to act like him. It's really simple. God's will is for you to look and act and breathe like Jesus. He is who we are being formed to look like. He is the goal. Do you look like him today more so than you did yesterday? Jesus being this exact representation, this exact imprint. But it also uses this word, it says Jesus was the firstborn. Now, some would contend, and in some other religions, they would contend that this phrase firstborn means Jesus was brought into existence. To be the firstborn, you were you brought from, from nothing and, and brought into to becoming something. And, and, and certainly that is a, a meaning of this word in other contexts, but there's a greater context in Colossians that Jesus being the firstborn is not referring to the fact that he was created. The church dealt with that Arian heresy uh, in the the second or third century. and said, no, that's that's not what that means. But but, but more specifically, what it does mean when it says Jesus was the firstborn, it, it means that he holds this position, positionally before God. He is the most esteemed He is the one whom whom the father has exalted and he said listen if you want to bring glory to god you exalt the savior he holds the preeminent position we've seen this throughout the old testament in places like when isaac was abraham's firstborn even though ishmael what was but isaac got the position and all the promises jacob and esau was a very similar instance Where the firstborn didn't receive what was due to him, but there was this position that it was deemed worthy on the other end. And if we continue to go on, it says in verse 16, he says this, for by him being Jesus, all things were created, everything in heaven and on earth, everything that's visible and invisible, whether it's thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now I'm gonna sting you just a little bit this morning because I needed to hear this and be reminded of this this week and I think some of you need to hear this as well. It regardless of the country, the president, the prime minister, regardless of whether they're good or evil, whether they're just mediocre or okay, God in his sovereignty will use all things for his purposes and for his will. He will accomplish whatever he wants And here's the thing that that mild church historians very rudimentally understand is this. The church is often the most effective when it has been pushed back on its heels. When the church is under persecution and religious liberty is at threat, that is more often than not when the church thrives and it grows, at least historically. That's when revival takes place. That's when awakening comes Now, do we pray for suffering and persecution? I don't. I don't want it. And I pray for peace and and prosperity. I want to live in harmony with my my civil authorities and and those that have been put over me in authority. But if it comes, as a student of history, I'm going to recognize this, that the church will grow and it often does when it's on its heels and it's been pushed back. Tertullian, one of the early uh, church theologians said this, that the blood of the martyrs, those who are dying, it's the seed of the church. You want to see the the church grow? Then we're going to put some blood in the ground. Playing sports, we used to use that phrase, blood makes the grass grow. You remember that? It's true. And so the church will grow in the midst, regardless of what's happening. And so my, my, my admonition to not just in this room, but those watching and really what the church as a whole needs to understand, we need to, to work hard and be advocates for mercy and, and justice. But friends, we do not fret like the rest of the world. We don't worry like the rest of the world. We don't have anxiety and fear and dread like the rest of the world. Why? Because we recognize that for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Paul says elsewhere in Romans 11:36, he says for him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Verse 17 continues on and he says this and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Now, I'm not telling you this to impress you because I, I, I sort of know Greek and remember some of it. Actually, I just have a really good Bible program that reminds me of what I'm supposed to know. But this week as I was studying and going through this verse and it got to that phrase, hold together. And so I do what I always do. I'll find the verbs and the participles and I'll find out what tense it's in. And, and I do my little cheat sheet where I pull my cursor across it. What is that? Okay, boom, boom, here we go. And here, here's the thing I never knew about this. I studied this passage a lot of time, learned this this week, never knew it. In the Greek, that phrase hold together is in the perfect tense. And the reason why that's important for you to know is because when a verb is in a perfect tense form and ending, it means that it, that it was once and for all decided in the past, but that action of holding things together has a future effect, that it continues along in, in time and in history. And so when we read the phrase, he holds all things together. He held them at the beginning of time. He held them when Jesus uh, was was born of a virgin and came and died and suffered. He's held it for 2,000 years. He's still today, this very moment, he holds it all together. Friend, do you know that, that today in this very moment, Jesus is holding together his church? He's holding together you as a brother or sister But did you know, I'd even go one step further than that to remind us of this, that the very breath that you take right now, the very beat of your heart as it pumps blood to your organs, it is held together by Him. You being able to see and and to hear and to process and to live and flourish and, and thrive, all of that is being held together right now at this very moment by Him. Not just by him, but but for him as well. So that you would make much of his name to the ends of the earth and to the nations and to your city, to your school, to your workplace. That you would make much of him because he's holding you together. He's sustaining you. In every which way, he spares you. He shows mercy to those things. that The very act that he would hold us together is this act of mercy in which he displays upon his people and he shows us. But we keep reading and he says this, and he is the head of the body. He is the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. I know you don't need this reminder, but I need this reminder from time to time. And and especially Terry Coy needs this reminder from time to time that Jesus is the head of the body. There is no head behind this pulpit that's the head of this church. There is no Terry Coy or, or Larry Thompson or any of our elders. We're not the head of the church. We have just been called to be shepherds for a time. Whether it be five, 10, 30 years, we we steward the time and the responsibility because Jesus is the head, not us. Not even the the member, the, the congregation. Like Jesus is the head. He is the one to whom which we take our orders from. He's the one in which we, we take our commands from and that we live. And so one of the things that, that we wrestled with as elders over the past few weeks is is, is worship essential enough? Or are we forsaking the assembly if we don't meet? And the imperative to, to gather as his people and to be together. And ultimately, we came back to this conclusion where we're gonna apply wisdom and wear masks and spread out and, and be as safe as possible and hold off on in person small groups just for the time being. But yes, we deemed worship to be essential. It is essential, it's absolutely 100% essential. We need each other. I, as good as uh, Jeffrey and his team are uh, watching online, it is so much sweeter and, and richer in person. As good as it is to, to, to connect on, on social media and to drop a post or a comment or a like, and those are all wonderful things, can be used for the glory of God. But it's so much better to see somebody face-to-face whether it's an air high five or or a knuckle or or whatever it is that you're doing these days. Like it is so much better. We are made for one another. And I think one of the big lies that the church has eaten up and, and church members have eaten up, some wrongly, some out of necessity, is that social media is a supplement. Live on stream is a supplement for the real thing. It's just not. It's not. Worship is essential and He says he's the head of the body and so during difficult times we listen to authorities but we apply the wisdom of of them but but we also recognize that we have a mandate verse 19 continues on and it says for in him jesus the fullness of god was pleased to dwell Fullness just simply being the the divine power and the attributes of God. They dwell in Christ and He perfectly embodies them. Now, why, why did all this happen? Well, it says in verse 20 that through Him, Jesus, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Friends, one of the reasons why we journeyed into this series, at least for me, this week, beginning today, is because this, this this one verse in this moment, it's through the blood of Jesus that we are reconciled to God. And no government, no state, no governor, no mayor, no DA, no president, no anyone who serves on any elected term or unelected term or appointed official, none of those people will ever be able to do for me what Jesus did. They never will, no matter how hard they try and how hard they labor and how much they, they long. And you wanna sing uh, John Lennon's uh, Imagine song, which is about this just reality. We're just in this utopia with, with no heaven and, and we just all get along. And, and just one of the most naive songs that I've, I've ever heard in the entirety of my life, artfully done, absolutely. Got a, got a good tune to it to remember 100%. But that does not happen this side of eternity because we have been reconciled to God by Christ because of his blood. He's not just reconciling humanity, he's also reconciling creation for we see in Romans eight. You guys remember this verse in Romans eight where he says this, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. What that means is, is that not only was humanity affected by the fall, but this is also the reason why we see natural disasters when we see hurricanes and volcanic eruptions, when we see tornadoes, bad weather, all of those things, it is because creation has been affected by the fall as well. This creation was subjected to it, not willingly, but because it was deliberate and there were consequences for that. Verse 21 He begins to wrap up and he says this, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Is he worthy? He's the only one worthy. Is he worthy to do that and able to do that? He's the only one worthy enough and, and able to do that. He's the only one that has the ability to to bring us to himself. He has reconciled us so that he can present to us uh, uh, the God of the universe, sovereignly who rules and reigns. We get to be presented to him unblemished because of what Christ has done for us in redeeming us of our sins, saving us of those things so that when I die, I get to be with God because he's my reward. Regardless of the old hymns and mansions and glories and jewels on my crown, I hate to break it to us, but that is not our reward biblically. Our reward is Jesus, my friends. He is our treasure. He's the thing that, that we esteem above all other things. Is he worthy? Absolutely, he is worthy of all things. So how do we put this, what do we, what do we, how do we take this and, and how do we apply it to to where our church is and where our hearts are, just a couple of quick things. Number one is this. When we read passages like Colossians 1, 15, and we walk through this and we see the worthiness of Jesus, what it tells us is this. If all things are created for him and to him and by him, and he's reconciling us to him, then everything that we sing about and talk about, our worship ought to be saturated with Jesus. It ought to make much of, of who he is. And if it doesn't, I don't want to do it. If it's about feel-good nostalgia and, and old times, I mean, there's a place for that. But in worship, I just want to talk about Jesus. I want to make much of him and, and sing about him because he's the only one that is worthy of my song. He's the only one worthy of my, of my time and, and my attention and my, my heart. But, but Christ is all in our worship. He's also all in our affections. He's what stirs our affections. When we begin to understand him rightly and and the work and the length and the depth of the cross and and how it impacts us, he's worthy of that. And so Christ needs to be in all of my affections. But Christ is also my mission, my friends. He's my mission. To see people far from God come to know Christ. That's what I wanna see. Here's what I think is happening in the life of, of churches as a whole. I've sort of held off for over a year just sort of watching this, but, but here's kind of what I'm beginning to notice, some of the trends. I think we're going to look back on 2020, and I think we're going to see a culling. We're going to see a shaking. And there are going to be people, predictably, that are not going to come back. Some are going to live in fear for the rest of their lives of, of COVID, even with a vaccine. COVID's not going anywhere. Just because you get vaccinated doesn't mean it's, it's going to disappear forever, and There are going to be some that, that perhaps could be controlled by that, for maybe right reasons or, or even wrong reasons. I don't know. the Lord knows. There are going to be some that, that get so used to, they've adjusted. It takes 21 days to make a habit. We have, we're, we're about to have over 365 days of a pandemic. Think about that. Habits are being formed. They have been formed. And it's gonna be interesting to see what plays out. And the reason why I'm telling you this is not to despair, but this could be the most opportune time for churches to radically think through the way they go about seeking to accomplish their mission. Like now's the time to be gathering that information and thinking, where do we wanna be? Where do we wanna go? In the past few weeks, I've gotten this question, Pastor, what's gonna be your vision for 2021? And, and my answer's always sort of been the same up until about a week and a half ago. I just said, I don't know, like I think a good goal would be like, let's just get people back to church. How's that for vision 2021? But here's what I'm, I'm wrestling with and going, that's not really the goal. Churches that are focusing on just regathering are gonna miss the mission. And what I think needs to happen within our church and and we'll begin working on this this week with our staff is rather not necessarily regathering, but rather how are we going to connect with people in our church and those that are far from God? And I'm not just talking about Zoom. Don't roll your eyes at me. I know we're all Zoomed out. I get it. It's not the most ideal, but relationships are going to continue. Our neighbors are still not going to know Jesus and so one of the things that I think that we as a church need to focus on is how do we connect with people outside of these walls? Our legacy here for 30, 40 years has been the blessing that most of the ministry that we have done has happened at 800 West Berry Street in Fort Worth. Almost all of our ministries primarily have existed within this location. And what's happened over the past year, we have been unable to do many of those ministries from a a geographical standpoint. And we can sit by for another year and sort of wait for this to sort of pan itself out or we can kind of start moving a little bit and nudging a little bit and going down a road where we begin to see people that begin to gather, not just here at the physical building, begin to gather in homes and and in restaurants and and begin to talk and begin to make much of, of Jesus. Two of my favorite times um, every other week or when I sojourn with with two men and we we do it separately, but we do it in two very different locations. And every time we sojourn, we do it out in public at restaurants. And we typically try to bring our Bibles and, and we just flop open those Bibles on the table, waiters coming by, people are walking by. We go to crowded restaurants where it's sometimes hard to hear every once in a while. And we just start talking about the Lord out loud with one another. And we're talking about what the Lord's doing in our life, what he's doing in our heart, how he's shaping us, how he's changing us. And we go into the word and and we read the word and and, and we examine ourselves according to that all the while everybody's listening and hearing and and man, you ought to to hear some of the other conversations that you hear at other tables. And then here we are, not trying to be self-righteous, not even trying to draw attention to ourselves. just simply trying to, to live out our faith on display for the world to see. Because I can't do that publicly in this building. You know that? I can do it before my church friends, but I can't do it to a lost world that needs it most because my mission is to see them come to know Christ Christ is the goal and the aim he's the intent he's the purpose he's the consummation he's the culmination of everything and all the things that we do he is our mission friends is he worthy to you today pray with me father in heaven um, We just come to you in this moment and we we want to just pause. Um, We don't want to be like the rest of the world. We don't want to be like many of the Christians that we see that that fret and worry and and, and are anxiously ridden with the events that are going on culturally and in our country. We pray God that you would help us find a balance between concern and, and fret and fear. Help us find the balance between care and this sensational emotionalism that that exists. Father, help us just put our eyes on your son Jesus to get our gaze off the things of this world that do not matter in eternity and help us look to you. Tell us in your word that you are the bread of life, that whoever comes to you will no longer hunger. You tell us that whoever thirsts can come and drink, and you will become inside him a a well springing up into eternal life. You are worthy, Father. You tell all who are weary and heavy laden to come, and you will give them rest. You are worthy. Father, now hear our prayer. Hear our song as we give it back to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.